Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? Our intent is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the new IDSA guidelines on the treatment and management of patients with COVID-19. Here to cover that are Dr. Adarsh Bimraj with the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Rajesh Gandhi of Massachusetts General Hospital. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here with us. Dr. Bimraj, I'd like to start with you. We repeatedly hear that there is so much we don't know about COVID-19, yet when we think of clinical guidelines, we think of evidence of the best treatments. Can you discuss why this guideline was undertaken and how it differs from others? Thank you, that's a great question. Again, I'm a practicing ID physician. I see patients every day. A few weeks ago when I was in the hospital, COVID-19 clinical service, it was an overwhelming experience, Again, especially taking care of really sick patients in the ICU. It took a lot of time to take care of the patients. It took also a lot of time to talk and reassure families, uh, especially when the loved ones in the hospitals and they can't visit. Keeping up to date with the literature while caring for the patient seems like an almost impossible task. Like the volume of studies, data, evidence, no matter weak or strong being put out there was so insurmountable. And that's when I approached IDSA leadership about the need for a rapid and frequently updated guideline to equip the frontline clinicians with information they need so they can actually focus on caring for their patients. Uh, at the rate at which new data is coming, I think that was absolutely essential. The IDSA assembled a guideline panel of not just clinical specialists, but also specialists who have an expertise in carefully evaluating clinical studies uh, and translating these into evidence-based recommendations. The COVID-19 management guidelines are a result of a very methodologically rigorous process to take into consideration outcomes that actually matter for patients, like alleviating suffering and preventing death, not just the ability of a medication to kill a virus in a test tube or a petri dish. And these guidelines are intended to be a living document. Uh, as we gather more data and learn more uh, what works in patients and what doesn't, we will be constantly updating these guidelines. Because at the end, the goal is to help patients and help providers uh, take care of their patients. And yes, I think we don't know a lot of things. You can look at it that way, but also look at how far we have come from in the last couple of months. And I'm very confident in the next couple of months, we'll have more data that will answer these questions. Thank you for your answer, Dr. Bimraj. Dr. Gandhi, I'd like to move on to you at this time. Can you discuss what we know right now about current COVID-19 treatments and what the guidelines tell us about which treatments will likely be the most successful? The main message of the guideline is that clinical trials are critical right now. We really need more evidence and more data so that we can improve the care of people with COVID-19. So in developing these guidelines, we looked at two dimensions of the problem. We looked at the type of intervention, uh, which includes supportive care. Now, supportive care doesn't mean no care. Supportive care means um, doing everything you can uh, to make sure people don't get dehydrated, that you control fever, that you um, control discomfort, and that you give oxygen if needed. But then we also looked at interventions um, that are focused on um, battling down the virus, you know, getting rid of the virus, antivirals. And then we looked at evidence related to treatments that work on the immune system. Uh, and the immune system category um, looked at evidence for trying to use the immune system to, to get rid of the virus early on. We know that happens in many in infections is that the immune system clears the, the infection. 
But in COVID-19 and some other infections, the immune system can sometimes go haywire. It can sometimes get over-exuberant or, or do a lot of collateral damage. So we also looked at treatments that work on tamping down the immune system if, if people are getting into that phase where the immune system is, is causing harm. So that's the type of interventions we looked at. We also um, discussed the severity of the disease. Um, uh, uh, most people with, with COVID-19 have mild disease, the, the, the majority, the vast majority, and those people with mild disease will recover on their own without any uh, specific treatment. They do need to be monitored carefully, though, in case they, they um, clinically worsen, in which case um, more, more um, therapies or supportive care would be needed. These guidelines mainly focus on people hospitalized with COVID-19. As Dr. Bimra said, all of us are, are really um, you know, seeing many, many patients in our hospitals, and these guidelines focused on what we can do there. So in terms of current COVID-19 treatments, um, much of what we discussed comes from test tube studies, animal studies, or studies that are um, related to uh, other human coronaviruses, the, the SARS um, uh, virus um, from some years ago, as well as the MERS uh, virus. And so we looked at data from, from all of those sources. One problem with um, the data that comes from test tube or animal studies is we know in medicine and in infectious diseases in particular, that things that look good in a test tube or in animals uh, often don't pan out in human studies. Uh, so we had to look at uh, evidence that exists right now uh, for um, things that are being discussed, in, and we looked at that for human studies. So we looked at hydroxychloroquine with or without um, the antibiotic azithromycin. Uh, HIV protease inhibitors have been uh, touted as a potential treatment um, for COVID-19, uh, particularly lopinavir, ritonavir. And then we looked at um, the drugs that work on the immune system, things like steroids, um, convalescent plasma, um, anti-cytokine therapy, something called atosilizumab. And then finally, we looked at remdesivir, which is an antiviral, which is an investigational antiviral. As Dr. Bimraz said, the panel rigorously reviewed and synthesized evidence from the human studies that exist right now. And our ultimate conclusion is that, was that the human studies, the data from human studies are insufficient to recommend any particular medication today for treatment of COVID-19 outside of a clinical trial. And this is in line with the fact that there are no uh, FDA-approved drugs for COVID-19. I'd like to stay here with you, Dr. Gandhi. Can you outline why more trials are needed to better understand COVID-19 and the efficacy and safety of potential therapies? Yes. So the guidelines really end with a call for clinical trials and clinical studies. And, and we really um, think that, and, and that this is the only way to make advances and to find a, a treatment for COVID-19. We need to know more than we do now, and we think we will know more than we do now in a month or two. And the only way to get there is to do studies to find out what works. Um, really, our, our kind of our mantra, our, our um, uh, guiding light is we got to be guided by the science. And so that's, that's really the, the message of um, the guidelines is um, in order to understand COVID-19, we need to be guided by the science. As ongoing clinical trials continue, Dr. Gandhi, their findings will give us a better idea of how to better treat patients and create more options for that treatment. That said, what can you tell us about the progress of current ongoing trials and when we can expect results? So when we first started seeing our uh, first COVID-19 patients um, in my hospital, um, really there were um, essentially no trials available at that time. And this was just about a month ago. And, and so we had to, and we did give the best supportive care, and, um, and we did um, uh, really, at the time, use unproven therapies. But now we're in a very different situation today. 
around the country, uh, many, many trials have either been launched or are about to launch. And, and looking at clinicaltrials.gov, trials there are more than 100 clinical trials looking at different treatment options. Um, now, where are we with those trials? Um, let me start with the drug remdesivir. That's a drug uh, that um, is an antiviral. It was used in the past um, in studies uh, for Ebola. It's a, it's a drug that inhibits the, the replication or the, the virus's ability to make copies of itself. And so it was studied in Ebola. We know some about its safety, um, but um, it did not uh, prove as effective against Ebola as antibody-based therapies. But because um, test tube studies and animal studies supported the use of remdesivir for um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that causes COVID-19, uh, quickly that drug was moved into phase three clinical trials. And so there are trials going on with remdesivir um, really around the world. Um, and then there's a trial here in the United States that's sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. And we and other sites are participating in that NIH-funded uh, trial. These are randomized trials. What that means is there's a comparison group. And why that's really critical for COVID-19 is that most people with COVID-19 recover on their own, even without any therapy. So you can really only know if a drug works if you compare it to, um, um, if you have a comparison group. And so um, the remdesivir studies and the, the studies that are being launched all have comparison groups. And, and that's really, really key. Uh, so for remdesivir, there was a study released just last week that was a um, a case series of people who received remdesivir for compassionate use. And the majority of those people actually recovered. But the um, important point about that particular study is that there was not a comparison group. There, there are, however, um, studies of remdesivir where there is a comparison group. And we think that those studies will be available. Uh, uh, the results from those studies may be available in the next month or two. So that's, that's really important thing to, to be looking out for. In addition, there are many trials of hydroxychloroquine that are either been launched or about to launch. And we hope, because there are so many people with COVID-19 that will get results on those studies very, very soon uh, because um, um, there are so many people uh, that I hope will go into clinical trials. That is a great segue, Dr. Gandhi. Dr. Bimraj, not everyone can get into one of those trials. What then can be done to systematically gather and document reliable patient data? It's a good question situation is changing. As Dr. Gandhi pointed out, I think the reality is when we are taking care of patients the last few weeks, uh, I think it was frustrating. There were only a few trials going on. But that number of clinical trials have increased. So I'm hoping the first thing that all of us as frontline providers should do is look for a clinical trial as we can enroll our patients. Obviously, having said that, not every patient can be enrolled in clinical trial or the infrastructure limitations to where we are seeing patients we might not. Even if that's the case, you can set up local registries and you can look at, again, outcomes for patients who have received the medication and controls or other patients who have not received the medications and methodically, systematically record the data. Now, huge randomized control trials can answer significant questions, but oftentimes the, the other questions or the nuances of the treatments can also be answered by well-done observational studies. And every institution uh, can do such studies, um, systematically looking at the experience and looking at the outcomes. And I urge uh, every provider out there to be a part of this. Again, 
generating good evidence is the best thing we can do to take care of our patients. Sticking with you, Dr. Bimraj, how will the lessons learned now as medical professionals find themselves navigating the COVID-19 pandemic assist with outbreaks and pandemics in the future? The lessons that we learned from this pandemic will apply to the next and the next one. Been compared to how we like, like take the Ebola epidemic or take the H1N1 uh, epidemic when we had, I think we were using a lot of medications. There were some observational studies, but we didn't start trials right away to have a better understanding of the pandemic. Now I think this is an opportunity to do it right. This is an opportunity to know not just what is the best treatment for COVID-19 pandemic, but also how do you organize studies in a pandemic situation? Again, what should be the endpoints? How do you do accelerated trials? Or in terms of IRB and ethics, again, how should we make sure to do these studies in an efficient manner, yet not compromise patient safety and make sure that um, they have really informed choices? I think all these, and they're being done at this point in time. I'm proud of people out there in the middle of a pandemic taking care of their patients and still trying to do trials uh, and uh, generate data. Uh, And we won't just learn from this pandemic, but for every other pandemic or whatever the next crisis around the corner. And I'd like to pick up and just say, in in some ways, um, what Dr. Bimrod says reminds me of the early days of of HIV um, when we really, just as we don't know what works now and what didn't, we, we didn't know what worked in the early days of the HIV crisis. We really had no good um, data to, to guide us. And what happened then, as, as I think happening now, is that patients, their clinicians, clinical scientists all came together, worked together to do trials and to do clinical studies that got us to where we are with HIV, where we have more than 30 drugs that work against that virus, and those drugs keep people living long and healthy lives. And so, as Dr. Bimraj said, that's where we need to get to with COVID-19, but much more rapidly given the, the scale of the pandemic. And we will get there together uh, with our patients and our fellow clinicians and with our clinical scientists if we do the studies needed uh, to really find out what works for our patients. Just to add to, again, I totally understand the sentiment of a frontline provider. Again, when I was taking care of my patients, some patients uh, did well and they went home and some patients didn't uh, and they passed away. And we were using a lot of medications in treating these patients. Some of these patients had adverse effects. And as the team, we wondered if these medications we're using were helping or harming our patients. Often as clinicians, we attribute success to the medications we prescribe. And we attribute failure to the disease itself, like COVID-19. We all believe in our anecdotal experience because it is visceral. It is there right in front of us. But if we are honest with ourselves, I don't think no amount of anecdotal clinical experience can truly answer the question, does this medication help or harm my patient? Only well-done clinical studies when you have a control group and an arm which receives the medications and people looking at outcomes in a blinded way where they don't know who got the medication or did not can truly assess that question. Again, we have feelings of helplessness as hopelessness, uh, but out of that, we, we feel like we have to do something and not just supportive care, like treating patients with potentially useful therapies. It feels like we're doing the right thing. It feels like we're helping our patients. But I don't know if we surely are. So as Dr. Gandhi said, supportive care is not no care. Uh, And systematically studying it in whichever limited way is better than systematically giving these medications to everyone. 
At this point, I'd like to open the floor for any last words. Dr. Gandhi, let's start with you. Well, you know, I, I just want to thank um, uh, all the clinicians and patients who are coming together during this uh, unprecedented time. Um, my father's in his late 80s, and he, um, he said he's never seen anything like this. And it's not just once in a lifetime, but it's really a once in a century kind of uh, situation that, that we're in. But we will get so much further as we work together to understand the disease, you know, understand um, how most people do with it and how can we change the trajectory of the disease uh, for those people who are, are severely ill. And so, you know, I just, um, I've never been prouder to be a member of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. This is a time where we're all rallying around the same cause. We have the same goal, which is to improve the care of our patients. And I, I know we can do it together. I echo the same sentiment as uh, Dr. Gandhi said. I think all the frontline providers who are working there tirelessly and selflessly caring for these patients, even with limited resources, you truly are the COVID heroes. I can't tell you how much I want to thank everyone. And I'm optimistic. I'm probably paraphrasing Albert Camus, the author, who said, um, like any other evils or ills, uh, a plague too has one common theme. It brings out the humanity in us. Together as individual providers, as organizations, as corporations, we can all come together. I think we can generate the science. We can take care of these uh, patients. And together, I think this will pass too. That is so very inspiring. At this time, we'd like to thank our knowledgeable panel, Drs. Adarsh Bimraj and Rajesh Gandhi. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as we invite another diverse panel of medical experts to discuss the latest developments on this rapidly evolving pandemic.